Welcome to Long Story Short, the global development news show. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. And I'm Adva Salvinger, associate editor here at DevX. Adva and I are staging a, a bit of a takeover of Long Story Short this morning. We're filling in for your usual host, Kate Wathen, who's out today. But it's a pleasure to be here. We're going to dive right in. We're talking about the Trump administration, the quote-unquote America First development agenda, and what that means and what it's likely to look like in year two of this administration. Before we get started, I get to put Adva on the hot seat. Um, we're going to do some icebreakers, get to know you a little bit better. Um, we'll see whether or not that actually happens. But here we go. So, Adva, are you ready? Sure. Okay. Who do you expect would be more likely to throw a dance party on behalf of his own birthday in the entire agency that he runs? State Secretary of State Rex Tillerson or U.S. Agency of International Development Administrator Mark Green? I'd have to go with USAID Administrator Mark Green on this one. I haven't met Tillerson yet, but I uh, have met Administrator Green on a number of occasions and have to go with him. Follow-up question. Mm -hmm. What is Mark Green's favorite dance move? <laughs> I wish I knew. I'll have to ask him next time okay. I talk to him. We'll throw that one into our next interview with the Administrator. It's International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day Thank to you. you. Happy International Women's Day, everyone. Um, this is a more serious question. Who is a woman working in global development that our readers, our community, might not be familiar with, but whom you think they should be familiar with? Sure. I mean, I think there's probably any number of women that, that you could throw out there. Um, but someone who I interviewed recently who I was pretty impressed by is uh, Dr. Hayat Sindhi, who is the chief scientific advisor at the Islamic Development Bank. Hmm. Um, she seems like a real rock star. Um, she is not only an incredibly intelligent and passionate woman, um, she's leading some of the bank's efforts around entrepreneurship and innovation, um, but she's also a real champion and advocate for getting more um, girls and women involved in, in STEM careers and, and a real role model. Fantastic. Is there a piece you can point us to to learn more about her? Uh, yeah, there, there's a piece that will come out shortly looking at some of the Islamic Development Bank's new initiatives around innovation and, and entrepreneurship Great. that I interviewed her for. Keep your eyes open. Excellent. Final question. And you've never, I have not remotely cleared this one with you. Uh-oh. Yeah. If, if the U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, this is the agency that gives credit guarantees and other things to encourage investment in developing countries. We're an animal. What animal would it be? <laughs> oh boy. Um, so obviously I've been doing a lot of reporting about OPIC and a lot of people would say uh, OPIC is a bit outdated. Ooh. So, uh, and, and needs some modernization and uh -huh. we'll get into this later. So I don't know, I think we might have to go with something that was like borderline prehistoric. <laughs> All right. Shots fired. I like it. Um, very good answer. Excellent. Any particular prehistoric animal, or just? No, I mean it could be something prehistoric that's you know still around, like you know one of those giant lizard type creatures that. An alligator. <laughs> oh, I guess you could go with an alligator. I mean, I was thinking maybe something a little more obscure, but. Okay. All right. Well, we'll go with that. Yeah. Obscure lizard from the prehistoric <laughs> era. Um, excellent. I'm sure they'll be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Now we all know who you are. Um, we're here as sort of uh, 
co-discussants. I'm not hosting or anything like that today. We're just going to have a conversation. Um, and we're talking about the Trump administration's America First development agenda, what that might look like in year two. So just to start, I mean, what do you think? Is, is the second year of this administration likely to look very different from yeah. the first year? So I'm going to turn this question back on you in a minute. Okay. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I think it probably behooves us to start by saying that um, trying to predict much of anything in this administration is probably a bit of a fool's errand. Yes. Um, and, you know, we were just talking about, about OPIC, and I think a year ago, most people would not have thought that it was possible that we'd be discussing a new U.S. development finance institution. And so I think um, we may be in for some surprises in the year ahead. I, I think in some ways, uh, some of the conversations are not much different than the conversations we were having this time a year ago, especially around the budget. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I think that there are going to continue to be some pushback and tension between um, sort of what Congress wants to see on development and what the administration plans are. Yeah. Before you put it back to me, can you just give people sort of the 101 recap on the new development finance institution? Sure. So, um, as, as Michael mentioned, um, OPIC is the U.S. Development Finance Institution. It's been around for quite a while. Um, sort and of lizard-like. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> That's what I've decided. So I, I think there's been an ongoing conversation over the years that it needs to sort of be revamped um, and be given sort of additional authorities. It also hasn't had a long-term reauthorization in about a decade, um, which has sort of hindered the, the agency's ability to plan and operate in the long term. So um, Basically, last week, we saw a new bill that was um, jointly introduced in the House and the Senate. It's a bipartisan bill. It's called the BUILD Act. I won't try to spell, tell you exactly what that stands for. It's an acronym, B-U-I-L-D, and exactly. one of those tortuous acronyms. Right. Yeah. Something about investment and development. Um, and the, the new bill would basically um, eliminate some existing um, components of USAID and OPIC and essentially merge them into a new development finance corporation um, that would also have some additional authorities that OPIC doesn't have today. And um, I think, you know, people who sort of look at the broader development uh, finance institution um, landscape will say that um, OPIC is sort of behind some of its colleagues. It doesn't, for example, have the ability to take equity um, stakes in right. companies, and that's something that this bill would address. It would also raise the ceiling of the amount of money that OPIC could invest. It would um, roughly double it, in fact. Um, and that's something that hasn't changed in, in decades, and it's something that OPIC is coming up against. It's right. um, pretty close to its cap currently um, and could even get there in the next year or two. Yeah. Um, and it would also have some grant authority. Uh, currently, OPIC can make you know loans and guarantees and other investments, but it doesn't necessarily have the capability to come alongside it with a grant. So, for example, if it's um, you know providing a loan guarantee to spur a local bank to invest in um, small and medium enterprises. Uh, it's often beneficial to be able to go alongside and provide some technical assistance or right. training to those bank officers about how to loan to this new um, group of customers or to help those business owners develop better business plans. And so right now that's often happening sort of in conjunction with USAID, but some of those relationships can be um, brought under the challenging. same roof. And so now they're going to be, if the, if the bill is passed under right. the same roof. And there's obviously some conversations still, many conversations still to be had about that. Um, 
and about some of the potential tensions and yeah. controversy. In but the this region. idea was—it's been out there for a long time, yeah. and now yeah. and in sort fact, of unlikely it, product of the right. the Trump administration. Yeah. And in fact, one of the interesting things that we've seen is. Um, the current CEO of OPIC is Ray Washburn. He's been very active in sort of pushing pushing this bill and pushing the idea of mm -hmm. you know building a better development finance institution. Um, but he's really building on the work of his predecessors. Elizabeth Littlefield did a lot to reform the agency and um, and has pushed a lot of these same ideas for years. And, and before her, um, Rob Mossbacher also was was looking at some of these same issues. And in fact, both of them um, have been working with with the current administration and with OPIC today to help sort of sort through some of these issues. Great. Yeah. So now it's your turn. Okay. <laughs> what bring do you it. think what, what do you think what do you think year two will bring? Do you think it'll be you think it'll be different? What you, what sort of developments might we see? I mean the first year was interesting. It was I think what we saw and what people remarked on um, was sort of a disconnect between policy and budget in this administration when it came to US foreign aid and, and global development. And what I mean by that is that in a lot of cases, whether it be the White House or Donald Trump's appointees to various development positions, they championed the things that we've long heard, heard people champion, like PEPFAR, um, like the role that US foreign aid can play in creating markets, um, you know, a wide variety of development goals that the United States has held for a long time. But then in addition to championing those things or speaking about them, they proposed these draconian budgets that would completely undercut the country's ability to play a leading role in a lot of those, those goals. So I think that will be a dynamic to watch. And I, don't, I have no real intuition into how it's going to play out. I think there are a few different directions it could go. I mean, we just saw the latest President's budget request, the FY19 request, which was essentially a, a kind of doubling down on on the same kind of cuts that the administration has proposed before. So that would suggest that you know that dynamic is going to continue, where you've got the White House proposing deep cuts, Congress sort of rejecting them, and things more or less staying the same. Um, but I I find myself wondering if the White House will start to exert sort of more. Um, force over the shape of development policy in year two. And the reason I say that is that I think the DFI bill is a, a really good example. Um, there are things about a new development finance institution that are interesting to the Trump White House, right? You've got this narrative about countering China's role in the developing world and particularly in Africa. That's an argument that is going to resonate with this White House. You've got this element of creating opportunities for U.S. businesses and looking for ways to you know, connect some of the industries that the president is trying to build up and preserve in the United States with opportunities in developing countries. That's another message that's going to resonate. So I wonder if you might see more instances where specific policy efforts or initiatives are going to align with the specific priorities that the administration has championed in its more in its domestic realm so far. I wonder if those might might sort of bleed into foreign affairs and, and foreign aid more specifically in yeah. year two. I mean, I think that you're also seeing that create some interesting tensions. So while I think um, a lot of people in the development community have sort of you know cheered this new development finance legislation, it's also raised quite a few 
kind of significant questions along yeah. some of those lines, right? So part of it is, does the current, does the bill have a strong enough development mandate, right? right? So do you lose that sort of core development mandate and focus if you're more concerned with how does this support U.S. businesses right. or how is this just about countering China? How does that impact where you're investing those funds? And yep. we have seen some new initiatives in OPIC that are clearly focused on sort of foreign policy um, priorities in terms of where they're sort of looking to increase their, their investments. Are you thinking energy stuff? What's kind of the... Yeah, no, I mean, I think we've actually seen some regional um, some regional shifts or, or new regional priorities, like looking yeah. at the Golden Triangle in Central America is a right. place that OPIC is going to look to do more investment. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think on this, on this issue of energy, I do think that we're going to continue to see um, sort of energy in Africa as a priority. I think it's also a space that there are um, U.S. businesses that are sort of eager to play a part in that. And that is sort of, you know, continuing and building the efforts of, of Power Africa. Um, and that, you know, I mean, I think one of the reasons we're seeing that is also because there's legislation that supports right. that initiative. Yeah, I mean, there's the perennial question of how much leeway does an administration actually have to sort of, to make its priorities policy in the development space because so much of the money is earmarked for specific things, for specific places. Um, so there's only you only have a certain amount that you can really play with, uh, but I guess what I'm interested to see is whether this in within the administration right now you've got this strange dichotomy where the Office of Management and Budget is pushing these cuts really hard. The State Department and USAID haven't really pushed back on that. They've kind of said yes, we can look for opportunities to be more efficient and effective. But I wonder if you might see that that cut agenda go away a little bit, and you know the White House look for more opportunities to to take that pot of money and do what it wants to yeah. do with it. I mean, I don't know that we've seen signs of that um, yet, and and I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, you know, the high-level presidential appointees when they're testifying before Congress, like they're obligated to support. Yeah. The, the administration's budget, right? Sure. So we're probably not going to see it at that high level, and we, we will probably see in the next few weeks um, Secretary Tillerson testify about, about the foreign aid budget. Um, but I, I do think that there is a concern among some people that we actually won't see a shift in terms of spending the money. Yeah. I, I've heard concerns from um, folks who are working in, in the administration that, in fact, we might see the opposite, that even if Congress appropriates money to current levels um, that either OMB will not give that to the agencies or the agencies won't spend it and they'll just say that they're carrying it over. Um, and, and there's a lot of people who are really concerned about that. It would be unprecedented, you know, Congress appropriates the funds and yep. generally they're spent. We generally haven't seen this um, sort of pushback. So it would be interesting to see what happens in that case if you see Congress sort of step up um, if their authority is being questioned, if you would see certain legal action, I don't know sort right. of the full extent of what would happen in Gets that case. Messy. Yeah, but there's yeah. but there is some some legitimate concern I think from people um, that that's a possibility. I think more than a possibility. There were some reports right. recently about the pool of money designed for yeah. countering about Russian aggression. Twenty million dollars not being spent. Yeah. Um, read into that what you will. Yeah, and um, people see that as sort of a early warning sign that this could happen um, in other places as yeah. well. 
let's back up really quickly and sort of reorient around where we are on the, the budget process in general, because it's very complicated right. and there are a lot of different factors at play. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, I try to keep track of this stuff, but we've got, so we're looking at, at funding for FY18 and FY19 now. There was a budget agreement in Congress, um, but that didn't set all of the specifics. So basically what it did was it set some spending caps um, and then within that, Congress is still working to determine how much money will go to U.S. foreign affairs and U.S. foreign aid. Concurrently, we had the president's budget request for fiscal year 19 come out. So that would be the year starting October 1st, 2018. This is like a <laughs> Kafka-esque situation. Um, and that proposed deep cuts. So you've got this back and forth right. continuing between Congress and the United States. Um, so what, what are we looking for now? We're looking for these 302B allocations. Right. Um, so we're looking to see what that, what that sort of budget agreement might mean Congress is looking at. And then um, we'll see some hearings um, about the um, FY19 um, request from the administration. Um, and then I think you'll sort of see committees wrestle with what, what the final appropriations are going to look like. and. Um, and obviously, that's both for for the current fiscal year and and the next one. So I right. think, um, you know, some people are maybe hopeful that we might see development spending sort of hold even. Um, but obviously, in, in that agreement, we saw some changes on um, on OCO, and I know yeah. that that's something that you've looked at a little bit. Yeah. So OCO is this is the Overseas Contingency Operations Budget. It's basically a portion of defense spending that's been kind of reallocated for development and foreign affairs purposes um, in places, for places um, where the U.S. has been operating military and stabilization activities related to um, violent extremism. Uh, so Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, places like that. It's this weird thing where the development budget, the development community has been dependent on a defense allocation and what you saw in the congressional budget allocation or the congressional budget agreement was an agreement to reduce that OCO spending. So the question now is, will Congress find money from other places to increase the base appropriation for foreign affairs And this is to the same yeah. level that they cut from OCO? Right. So there's sort of a, you know, this is a bit of a tense moment, I think, for the development yeah. community to see whether Congress is going to dig deep and really... Um, support the rhetoric that they've put out there about how we need to be propping up development alongside diplomacy and defense. And, and there's a lot of people who have concerns about the way OCO money is spent and allocated, and right. it essentially has grown very significantly um, as base allocations have, yep. have shrunk. And so it's, Proportionally, it's become right. a, yeah. a pretty significant part of, of, the, of the aid budget. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a, a key piece to watch. I mean, I think Generally, folks would be pleased if we had, you know, more base funding and weren't relying on this, this OCO funding. But um, if you see that OCO funding drop off and you don't see the base go OCO up. OCO funding is better than nothing. Right. 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 Yeah. And I think that's sort of been the way things have operated for the last few yeah. years. One of the reasons that the, the uh, hearings for the president's budget request haven't happened yet is because Secretary Tillerson is now yeah. in Africa instead of testifying on Capitol Hill. 
he gave a speech yesterday, right? Uh, Tuesday. 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 Yeah. Um, sort of laying out the administration's new framework for Africa. Did you hear anything interesting in that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think um, obviously it was it was a speech that was largely focused on national security and national security cooperation, and you see that also in terms of where um, where he's choosing to go. Yeah. Um, and first stop, Ethiopia. Yeah, and also uh, Djibouti, um, which has a pretty key base and is also a place where um, now China has a military base. Um, and, and I think the other thing that really came through is the need to counter China yeah. um, in Africa. And I, in fact, I um, was at a hearing yesterday on the Hill um, that was looking at this issue of sort of China's role in Africa and some of the uh, not, not only, you know, trying to get a sense of what maybe could be done legislatively um, to sort of address some of the potential downsides, but also some of the sort of ballooning debt of African nations yep. to China and, and what those dynamics might mean in how those, um, you know, both, you know, how those countries sort of go forward um, because there's very little known about how China would deal with um with needing to sort of like reform those debts or, yeah. or, or do debt forgiveness. Um, and also um, how some of these countries are voting with China at the UN, for example. Right. right. This is another piece that we should bring in, this issue of foreign aid as sort of a um, an element of transactional policy and whether, you know, the, the foreign aid budget will find itself as kind of a bargaining chip for countries that agree or don't agree with the United States and UN voting or whatever else you want to use to determine who our friends are mm -hmm. and aren't. Um, but on the on the China and Africa piece, I think it's interesting. I mean, it almost harkens back to the days when development was sort of a contest between the United States and the Soviet Union for influence around the world and the sort of spheres of influence question. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're right that this this narrative and this argument about countering China is one that we're going to see more and more as new initiatives arise, if new initiatives arise. Um, it's definitely been part of the discussion about this new development finance institution absolutely. that we need, you know, China is investing so much money and bringing so many of their companies to the continent that the U.S. needs to step up its efforts to do yeah. the same in this, in this new... Um, and Tillerson DFI. used some really harsh language in his speech on Tuesday talking about the way that China operates in Africa. He talked about opaque contracts and mm -hmm. um, not creating any jobs and undermining sovereignty or something like mm -hmm. that. It was um, a very direct challenge. Yeah, I think. calling it sort of a new form of colonialism. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so certainly an, an interesting dynamic to watch. On the question of, of new initiatives, yeah. we've seen the possibility for a development finance institution. The other one that comes to mind, and this I think relates very directly to Administrator Mark Green's ideas and his agenda, which focuses a lot on self-reliance, right. building self-reliance, ending the need for foreign aid to exist eventually. Um, there was a, a little throw-in to the, uh, the president's budget request calling for a new initiative on domestic resource mobilization. Right, and I know this is something that you've you've been looking at. I mean, I think, and um, you know, I mean, I think it's something that you've probably looked at since you were in Audis for the Financing for Development Conference, and that's um, you know been a conversation that has been evolving since then. And I think a lot of people are actually pretty excited that this is a place where the where the U.S. might really try to um, make a difference. So, what have you heard about what that strategy? 
might look like? Very little, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, we're hoping to hear more soon. I mean, I think, I think you're right that this, is, this has been a topic that's called for more attention for a long time and really does meld perfectly with, um, with this administration's priorities. Right. So, enter, you know, enterprise-driven development, self-sufficiency. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so what I have heard, I was at um, a UN conference a couple weeks ago. It was the first conference of the Global Platform on Tax Collaboration. So this is a kind of Sounds a... Sounds really exciting. It was pretty exciting, <laughs> not going to lie. Um, taxes, you know, it's a hot button issue. Yeah. It, gets, it strikes right at home. You know, there's a lot there and a lot of money on the table, too. If you talk about raising domestic resource mobilization from where it is in some developing countries around like five or six percent to where sort of the baseline benchmark is around 15 percent, that's billions and billions of dollars. So there's a lot at stake in this conversation. But... There was a, a USAID representative there who said something interesting. Um, he said, you know, in sort of alluding to this new domestic resource mobilization initiative, um, that in the time that he's been at USAID, there seems to be more enthusiasm now and a more open window now uh, to really make something happen on this issue. Um, so take that. I mean, the, yeah. they still have to put money behind it, and Congress still has to agree to it, and they have to come up with the the shape of what this might look like, but there does seem to be a, a sort of movement behind DRM that melds nicely with this conversation about self-reliance. I mean, I think a lot of what it is is, um, you know, building the capacity of countries' tax revenue authorities and things like that, and helping them shape um, fair tax policies that will uh, hopefully produce development results. And, yeah. Benefit. Well, and I think also just fair contracting and, and other policies, which I think also in this countering China discussion, if countries are unwilling to enter into some of these more opaque contracts or yeah. citizens are demanding that there is more transparency in these deals, it could also change the way some of those contracts are yep. structured. Absolutely. But I think this issue around domestic resource mobilization um, just makes me think, I mean, in general, we've obviously, there have been discussions about um, you know, changes and reform efforts within and the reconstruction efforts both within USAID and the State Department. And so that's obviously an issue um, I know that both of us are going to be watching in the year ahead. And unfortunately, there's relatively little that um, has been publicly really released to this point. But um, I was hoping you yeah. could share the you could unveil <laughs> the grand structure for all of us. Yeah, right I wish here. I knew. Um, but uh no, I mean, I think it's something I continue to ask people about in conversations that I have. And I think we, we've gotten a couple hints. I know you've had some conversations in which you've heard a few things. What, what, what can you let us in on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're likely to see some pieces move around. The initial question and probably fear <laughs> was whether USAID would be merged into the State Department. Um, my sense, and I don't know about about you, but I, my sense is that that's pretty unlikely yeah. at this point. I mean, Mark Green was a strong nominee for USAID, and we don't know what the conversations were between him and the administration, and you know what that looked like in his agreeing to take the post. But at this point, USAID seems like a fairly uh, secure, <laughs> securely independent agency in my view. Um, but there's some little pieces. I mean, the DFI bill would move some things around, and there's yeah. some creating efficiency there. 
But there's, I mean, there's also a lot of concern, you know, I mean, I think that the chief concerns that we've sort of heard um, as this bill was introduced are really about, well, what is, what does that mean for the relationship between the new DFI and USAID? Right. Um, So the Development Credit Authority, which would be moved, has been, uh, you know, pretty well functioning piece within USAID and a key piece in terms of, um, you know, USAID's engagement with with the private sector. Uh, And the pipeline is really, um, comes from the USAID mission. So how... You know, what does that look like? Um, And really ensuring that USAID remains sort of the center of um, U.S. development policy and and sort of what does that relationship look like? How do you perhaps, you know, mandate some of that within the initial language? How do you build sort of better connections between the two agencies going forward? And 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 avoid competition. Right. and, And whether you sort of strip any, you know, strength away from USAID, which is moving towards this enterprise-driven development mission. So, I mean, I think one of the questions is, do you diminish USAID's ability to engage with the private sector, which it wants to do, you know, by taking some of these components out of USAID and putting them in the development finance? And I think one effort underway to build connections between USAID and the private sector is through procurement reform. And this is both part of the reorganization and sort of something that administrators try to do all the time when they come into office, but certainly a topic we're going to keep watching. Mark Green wants to look for ways to broaden the range of partners that USAID can work with, and and that's one vehicle to do that. And engage with the private sector earlier on in the process. Right. Creating projects together. Exactly. Co-designing, as they say. Okay. Well, clearly we could talk about this forever, (laughs) Um, but I think it's time to wrap up. Thanks so much for having this conversation. It's been lovely talking with you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Again, this has been Long Story Short. I'm Michael Igo. And I'm Advas Southinger.